Lord, we ask that you would come and minister to our hearts, Lord. And Lord, uh, there's a sense of expectancy today, certainly in the room, and we're grateful for that. But we pray you would give us hearts that are, are ready to hear from you. Lord, to sit under your word and allow it to teach us. And I thank you so much for that, uh, that last song in particular, reminding us that you're the one that's exalted. And so we lift you up this morning, even as we sit under your word, Lord, we magnify who you are, Lord, uh, asking you to speak into our lives truth. And Lord, there's a couple hundred different people here all going through different things, and you know that. And so, Lord, uh, just in that miraculous way that you do, we pray that you would speak to each one of our individual hearts your truth. Thank you for your word. Blessed this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as uh, I just mentioned, we're going to be in the book of Titus, the third of Paul's three pastoral epistles, two of them written to that fellow Timothy, and this third one written to this fellow by the name of Titus. You'll remember that Timothy was a young man that he commissioned to go to the city of Ephesus, probably the most influential city in that part of the world. Uh, in that day, and he, he sent young Timothy there, and he gave him a mission. Paul would be there too if he could, but you can only be in so many places, and so Paul trusted Timothy, and in many ways, he sort of designated him as an apostolic representative there in the city of Ephesus, and he did the same thing for this young man, Titus. In Titus's case, it wasn't going to be in the city of Ephesus. It was going to be in another well-populated city on the island of Crete. And we've discovered a few things already in our study. We've looked at a few things in our study here of Titus. This will be our third study. Uh, we're still in chapter one, so you didn't miss all the book, but you, you missed a third uh, of the book or so. Um, but we've learned a few things in chapter one that I will remind you of. The first is that Paul had been with Titus on the island previously. And so he wasn't sending Titus there as a first-time missionary, kind of like, good luck, I hope it goes well, let me know what's happening, that sort of stuff. They had been there together. They had spent time on the island. They had ministered on the island. Crete was not a small little deserted island. It was an island the size of something like the state of Delaware. There was some 90 to 100 cities or villages on the island. So it was a well-populated city or highly populated uh, community or province, if you will. And if you look at verse 5 from one of our previous studies, you'll notice there that Paul talks about this idea of having left uh, Titus there. He was with him and then he took off because Paul had to get somewhere else and do some additional ministry, just like he had to leave Timothy where he left Timothy. Look also in verse 5, it goes on, and it says, so that you might put what remained into order. And that tells us that together, he and Paul, Titus and Paul, they started some of the work that needed to be done, but there was still more work to do. And so there were things that remained. Now, lastly, what we've learned from this first chapter is what some of that work was. Again, if you look at verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, our study last week spent our time looking at what the qualifications, what the character traits of one of those elders needed to be. 
And I remind you, Paul didn't go into a long thing of make sure you understand this doctrine and make sure you've gone to this school or make sure you finish this degree, those kinds of things. What he was looking for, what Timothy was to be looking for, were character traits, the type of person that would, would have the hard attitude to be successful in the work that they were to do. And it was going to be Titus's job to go into each one of those towns in every town and find the men that qualified according to the qualifications that he gave. If you look at verse 9, skim down a little bit, after giving us the quality traits or the characteristics, he then says the work that they would do, and that is that they would give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. So these elders then that Titus is going to appoint, they needed to be men, two things, that could and would teach sound doctrine. Because a lot of people can, they know it, but they're intimidated to share it, or they're intimidated to confront someone that is teaching false doctrine. So Paul says, you need to find men of such a character trait that are so committed to the word of God that they can teach the word of God and they will teach the word of God. And then secondly, if you look at verse 9 there, they, they would also correct unsound doctrine. Teach sound doctrine, correct unsound doctrine. Exhort the believers and confront those unbelievers, if you will, that you have there. Now, the word that Paul used in verse 9, this is a little bit of a review, so if you feel like, yo, man, slow down here a little bit, you're not building up anything. It's a little bit of a review. He, he uses the word there, rebuke, he says, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's a very strong word in the Greek language. It's a word that many times we try and stay away from. I don't want any confrontation. I don't want any drama. I just want to kind of get through my day, get back home, have a nice meal, and go to bed um, here. But this is a word, this word rebuke, it means uh, to identify what is false and then to prove why it is false. All right, so it is presenting necessary evidence to prove why a doctrine, why a teaching, why that was wrong. And so obviously these elders, they need to be both teachers of the word and also defenders of the word. That's what Titus would have to do. He would have to go into these communities and do that, and then he'd have to appoint elders that would remain in those communities and do that. And that's the work that continues today for God's church. We're to teach the word of God and we're to correct unsound doctrine. Uh, teach sound doctrine and correct unsound doctrine. Now, why? Can't people just believe what they want to believe? Is it really that big a deal? Well, Paul would say, yes, it is. Paul would say it's, an, it's actually very dangerous to allow false doctrine to remain and to sort of make its way into a body of believers. And so this, now Paul's going to develop this idea. Why is it so, such a negative? Why does it have to be dealt with? Why can't it just be ignored? And what we'll see here is whereas in verses uh, 6 through 8, Paul said these are the character traits of a godly person that can be the elder of a congregation. Here he's going to begin to develop a little bit. These are the character traits of an ungodly person that will go off in the direction of false teaching. And so let's read that passage with that idea in mind. We're picking up in verse 10. It says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. 
They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by their teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Yikes. All right, yeah, I know. His strong words here. I thought everyone, I thought we went to church, everybody loved each other. Well, yes and no, apparently. Um, here, Paul comes out with some strong words here. And again, the emphasis is how dangerous the false teaching can be. Notice here, Paul's not playing around with it. Paul's not saying, I ah, don't worry about it. Everything will be fine as long as we all get to heaven or whatever. Paul says, no, it needs to be dealt with. It needs to be confronted. And he gives three facts about these false teachers. Number one, it, these are all in verse 10. He says they are insubordinate. I'm going to develop each of these. But he says they're insubordinate. He says they are empty talkers. And then he says that they are deceivers. And he says, especially those from the circumcision party, which, again, I'm going to talk about. Let's look at each one of these individually. It is the function of an elder or a pastor or an overseer. All those terms are used interchangeably in the New Testament. It is the function of an elder to deal with people who introduce false teaching into the church. And so an elder that is doing his job, pastor that's doing his job, a church leader even that is doing their job, they're not going to ignore it. They're not going to pretend it doesn't happen. They're not going to hope that it goes away. It needs to be dealt with. That being said, let me say this. I think it's important to point out that a person with false teaching is not necessarily a false teacher. And let me explain what I mean by that. Sometimes a person is just mistaken. You're going to handle a person that has false teaching differently than you're going to handle a person that is a false teacher. Sometimes a person is just mistaken. And when they are, that person needs to be lovingly corrected. I think of, for instance, in the book of Acts. You may recall there's an account there of a couple. Their names are Aquila and Priscilla. And they go down to the center of town, and there's a guy there that's preaching. It's a, it seems like a church guy there, and he's preaching. He's doing his thing. His name is Apollos. And as they're listening to Apollos, they're like, this guy knows the Old Testament. Man, this guy can speak. This guy can make a case. This guy can hold an audience or whatever. But as they were listening to him, they realized that Apollos came so far, but he didn't quite get it. He didn't fully seem to understand the gospel and the work that Jesus came to do. We're, we learn in the particular passage that he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been struck, instructed in the way of the Lord. And yet what we learn is the extent of his knowledge ended with the baptism of John. And so if you want to think of it this way, he understood John chapter 1 and John chapter 2. But he, didn't, he wasn't quite familiar with yet the rest of the book of the gospel of John. You understand where I'm going with that? And so this is how Aquila and Priscilla dealt with him. They didn't stand up and say, you don't know what you're talking about, get off the stage. They didn't like chase him away. They didn't say he was a heretic or a false teacher. They did this. It says he, be, uh, Apollos, Acts 18, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, 
again, recognize he didn't quite get it. They took him aside. They explained to him the way of God more accurately. He wasn't quite there yet. And so, yeah, we would say his teaching was false, if you will, or not fully correct. Maybe we'll say it that way. But that didn't mean that Apollos was a false teacher. Paul's talking about something different. What, what makes a person a false teacher is that they refuse to recognize authority. And whether that's the authority of the apostles or it's the authority of the word of God or it's the authority of God himself, they refuse to recognize it. Yeah, I know what the Bible says, but I have greater revelation. Well, that's a false teacher. If they refuse to recognize it. Notice what he says in verse 10, Paul that is. He says that they are insubordinate. That's a person who will not submit to God's order of authority. Again, the apostles, the local elders, the word of God, whatever it might be. So he says they are insubordinate. The next thing he goes on to say is that some of the folks that Titus is going to have to deal with, they're empty or vain talkers. My version says empty talkers. Some of your versions might say vain talkers. This is the idea, and the word usage is they spew nothing but hot air. It's a big balloon. Ooh, look how pretty. But there's nothing to it. There's no uh, substance to it. These teachers, they teach nonsense. Nothing upon which you can really build your life or construct a good life, if you will. That's what he means when he says they're empty talkers. And then lastly, he says they are deceivers before he gives an example of the deception that they have uh, bought into. They were deceivers because they themselves had been deceived. And in this instance, the deception was involving the circumcision party, which he names there in verse 10. Now, the circumcision party is, as we're studying through the New Testament, is something we come back to on a number of occasions. Sometimes it's referred to as the Judaizers. And this was uh, comprised of, and I'm going to put it in quotes, Christians, maybe they were, maybe they weren't, I can't say for certain, but Christians who taught that in order for a Gentile to be saved, and by that, if you're not familiar, what I mean is forgiven of their sins and brought in the right relationship with God, that for a Gentile that's a non-Jew to be brought into a right relationship with God, they first had to become a Jew by getting circumcised, following the Jewish diet, keeping the Mosaic law, all of those things that were connected with it. And so you want to be in a right relationship with God, then you got to become a Jew in order to be so. That acceptance with God was dependent upon what a person did and not what Jesus did. Well, that's not the message of the Christian faith. And so this circumcision party, they would call themselves Christians, but they weren't preaching and teaching the message of the Christian faith. They were teaching you had to do something to be right with God, and that is not the gospel. Again, the word gospel, it means good news. That was not the good news. Work as hard as you can and hopefully you'll get into heaven. When in reality, we know that nobody is good enough to get into heaven. Well, that's not good news. That's bad news. This is what Paul said in the book of Galatians about these Judaizers. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And again, that's in the context of what these Judaizers were teaching. Let's bring these Gentiles under a yoke, under bondage to slavery. 
And so if that was your understanding of the Christian faith in Paul's day and maybe even in our day, then you did not understand the Christian faith. And if you were convinced that uh, you did understand it, when the reality is you didn't understand it, if you were convinced that you did, well, then you'd been deceived. And that's what Paul's talking about. They, these folks here that he's looking at, they were insubordinate, empty talkers, and they were deceivers. Deceivers because they themselves had also been deceived. And when corrected, if they refused to receive that correction about their misunderstanding of what the Christian faith was all about, then they would rightly be called false teachers and dealt with in the way that Paul is saying they need to be dealt with. Damaged doctrine damages people. It's important. It messes people up. A lot lot of times we think, well, you know, I just want to kind of feel good. I want to go and kind of get encouraged, and if, you know, the little tingles happen while I'm there, great kind of thing. But I don't like to get into doctrine. Doctrine is immensely important. And the false teachers here on the island of Crete, they were damaging people with their damaged doctrine. They were adding something to the work of Christ. And anytime you add anything to the work of Christ, yes, Jesus died on the cross for us, but you need to be baptized in order to be saved. It's his work on the cross and your baptism so you can go to heaven. You've added something to the work of Christ. We are saved, forgiven, solely because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the faith that we have in that work that the scripture says God gave us the faith to believe. It's his work. It's not ours. And anytime you add anything to the work of Christ as the basis of your acceptance with God, you are emptying the cross of its power. And Paul's saying it's that significant. I quoted earlier a portion of that Galatians passage. Here's how Paul goes on to talk about it. Same context, circumcision party. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no value, no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Now, again, context. If you want to go get circumcised as an adult male, good luck to you. All right? You can do that if you want to. But... If you're doing it because that's how you're going to get to heaven, it's not going to accomplish anything for you. And so you might as well not even do it. It doesn't make any sense to do it. It's not going to accomplish anything. That's Paul's point. I testify again to every man who accepts it, thinking it's going to get him to heaven, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you who would be justified by the works that you do, you have fallen away from grace. And as Paul would write in the book of Ephesians, for by grace you are saved through faith. Not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. And so because this teaching then on the island was so dangerous, people were going to go through all of these things, do all these things for God, and it was going to have no benefit in their lives whatsoever. Paul says, look, those teachers must be Silence. Look at verse 11. They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not gain, what they ought not to teach. They must be silenced. Now that sounds a little bit like Paul was ordering a hit to be put out on these guys, you know, find a dark alley somewhere and take them out. That's not what Paul is saying. 
Paul's not saying silence them once and for all, like kill them. What he has in mind are two different things. The first, by silencing them, is removing any opportunity these false teachers had to pass on their damaged doctrine. So especially in what we might call a church-sanctioned event. You know, when the people are gathering, they're trusting that who is standing here is going to teach them the word. Now, again, we're always Bereans. And so whatever I'm teaching or any of the pastors are teaching, we always go back to the word. Berea was a town. They were commended because even though Paul the apostle taught them, they went back to the word to see if these things were so. So we always do that. But there should be a basic level of assumption when we come and we sit down that the person that's going to be teaching here is going to be teaching truth. And if we just put anybody up here and say whatever you want kind of thing, well, you're going to hurt the congregation. And so one of the meanings of this idea of silencing those that teach these things is not giving them some official opportunity to peddle their teachings to those that uh, are in the congregation. The second meaning of it, which I think is maybe even more important, that Paul has in mind, it's revealed by the word that he uses for silenced. So again, this isn't a Greek word which meant take them outside and shoot them. All right? It's a Greek word which means to, con to prove that their, their teaching is false. So in a sense, like debate, point it out, prove it, case closed, they're silenced. Does that make sense? I kind of went through it rather quickly there. But it's to silence a person by reason, to make the case for why their teaching is wrong. These elders were to use sound doctrine of the word of God to correct the unsound doctrine of these false teachers. And then that would have the effect of silencing them. Because then when they came to talk with people in, you know, in a coffee shop or whatever it might be, the congregation will be trained in the word of God and they'll say, that's not true. That's not right. You know, here, Paul said here. We learned this two weeks ago when we were at church and so on, right? And so you've silenced them. They don't have an influence on the congregation. Again, I think that's maybe more important than the other one. They're both important, but I think doing that is more important because even the best of leaders, they can't deal with every single issue that raises its head in each of our lives. When you leave here tomorrow, you go in 200 different directions. And I don't know who you're going to encounter and what you're going to encounter. And so I can't be ready on the phone. Call me. If you've got a problem, you call me. I'll be ready for you. You need to be ready. And so when somebody sits with you and they begin to present something, you're ready because you're knowledgeable of the word of God. Maybe you have some awareness of their false teaching and how to defend it. But more importantly, you're knowledgeable of the word of God. And when it just doesn't fit and measure up with it, you know it instantly. And in doing so, you have silenced the false teachers. Notice how he goes on to say they are upsetting whole families by their teaching. This sort of implies this idea that these teachers were going from house to house to house, sitting with family, a little cake in the middle, come on in, have a cup of coffee, you know, sitting there and peddling their false teachings to this, if you want to think of it as this unsuspecting family. It was in this environment where there were no leaders around to intervene and say, no, 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 that's not true. No, stop that. No, you're misquoting Paul there, and so on and so forth. And the result was people were being convinced 
by these false teachers, clever, persuasive arguments, well-spoken, well-presented, and they were leading people astray. Now you think of those that will come to your door, and our church, we've gone door to door in our community, inviting people to events or whatever, but ultimately inviting them to a relationship with the Lord. But you, you, what you know, I'm sure maybe you've experienced it, there are a lot of cult groups that will go door to door. In some cases, their salvation depends on it, how well they are, successful they are at going door to door and converting people to the faith. House to house, clever arguments, taking things out of context, deceiving others even as they have been deceived. Paul says they were upsetting whole families. Now this is an interesting word. The picture, it's not the same word, but it's the picture that kept coming to mind as I, I looked at the meaning of this word. You remember when Jesus went into the temple and they were selling you know, all kinds of stuff and they were ripping people off and people were like, I hate going to the temple. Those priests, they rip us off. And now people hated essentially a relationship with God because of the way that the priests were misrepresenting God. And Jesus goes in there, and he starts throwing tables. I don't, don't do this. I'm not sure that's what we're called to do or whatever. But he starts throwing tables and knocking things down and chasing people out with a whip and all this kind of stuff. That's the general idea of this word upsetting. You know, so sometimes we read the word upsetting, and we think of, oh, you're making everybody sad. Or you're hurting everybody's feelings. Or everybody was happy until you had to upset everybody. You know, we think of it that way. That's not what this word means in this particular passage. The word here, I don't know how, why it came to mind. I don't know anyone in my life that has ever used this phrase, but I've heard it, and it's upsetting the apple cart. Have you heard that? That's a real phrase, and it means something. And so people say it, and it means they have a meaning behind it. It's the idea of overthrowing, overturning, or destroying something. And so, you know, you think of a, a table with a whole bunch of glasses of water or something, like in a, a race that people will run, and someone overturns the whole thing. You've just, all of our work, you've destroyed it. That's the word that is being used here. So Paul is saying these false teachers, they're going door to door, and they're destroying any semblance of faith that these people in those homes had. They're messing them up. They're coming in, overthrowing, overturning, and destroying the people's faith with their false teaching and their unhealthy doctrine. Again, Paul says they must be silenced. Now he'll go on and he'll reveal, and in doing so, he, he sort of points out the character of these individuals. Remember the character of the elders were people that were above, above reproach, people that loved their families and invested into their families and into their faith people that weren't drunkards or strikers or all those other things that we looked at a week or so ago. Here now, he reveals a, a little bit of, or part of at least, the motivation of these teachers. He says at the end of verse 11, teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. I said earlier, they deceived others because they themselves had already been deceived. But the reality is they were not innocent in what they were doing. They knew what they were doing, and they were doing it, as he says here, for shameful gain. They were using the ministry for what they could gain from the ministry. Now, for most, and this is what I think Paul has in mind, that meant money. But the reality is a lot of people misuse the ministry for forms of gain other than money. Things having nothing to do with money, like influence. And so they'll misuse the ministry so they can have influence or power. 
over other people or authority over other people. Or even just to satisfy, I need to have an important place in life so that people will be dependent on me. Well, that's misusing the ministry. That's not what it's there for, to make you feel better about yourself, Pastor. None of these things should ever be the motivation of why we minister. We minister whether we're pastors or we're just someone, I'll volunteer and I'll help and I'll go do that job. We serve the Lord for his glory and for the benefit of other people. And if we're doing it for some other reason, be very careful that you're not doing it for the type of gain that Paul is talking about. He, he calls that behavior, that motivation for ministry, he calls it shameful. He says that they are shameful. Now, then he goes on and he says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Nice. I remember, island of Crete, so Cretans are those from the island of Crete. A Cretan would then be an inhabitant of that island, and he quotes an old prophet of Crete. Now, Paul doesn't do this, but I think he could have. Prophet, he could put it in quotations, of Crete. He's not talking about like an Old Testament prophet. He's talking about a person who, yeah, he got that one right. He was able to see and, and say some truth right there. He calls him a prophet, in quotes, if you will. Cretans are always liars, always evil beasts, always lazy gluttons. Yikes. And that's from someone who was from Crete saying that. So he seems like he would have known. Now, the person that Paul is referring to as a prophet here was a fellow by the name of Epimenides. He lived on the island of Crete. He was Greek. He lived there about 600 years before the Apostle Paul, so we'll say about 600 B.C. He was a highly respected Greek individual in ancient times. The ancient Greeks actually considered him one of the seven great wise men of ancient Greece, or in their day, of Greece. One of the seven great wise men. He was a poet of sorts. And he may have been exaggerating a little when 600 years earlier he said they're always liars, always evil beasts, always gluttons. Because always, there's not one good guy on that island. No, they're always this. Okay, so he may have been exaggerating a, a little bit, but his basic asset assessment was right on target. It's not uncommon for cultural traits they become national or regional norms. You just sort of pick up attitudes and behaviors and tone and ways of talking and things like that just from the community in which you're growing up in and living in. And the, there were national characteristics on the island of Crete that were generally true. Generally, they were liars. And they were lazy gluttons and the other one that he lists there. In fact, there was a Greek word that developed, it was translated in English, to Cretanize. And it, be, and it became a figure of speech for lying or cheating. So the young people, the kids, you know those kids, they have all the phrases, yo man, why you be Cretanizing, is what they would say. <laughs> and that meant, why are you lying to me? There was another phrase, it was to Cretanize a Cretan, which meant to match lies with lies. Who are you trying to get over on? You trying to Cretanize a Cretan? I'm a liar too. You can't lie to me. To play the Cretan with a Cretan meant to out-trick a trickster. So the Cretans had a reputation. Words were being formed in the Greek language based on the cultural traits of these people. And Paul, he quotes that prophet 
quote unquote. He quotes that prophet and he says, as one of their own has said, all Cretans are liars. Now, I think this is really awesome here. And you got to track with me a little bit here. How wonderful then that Paul and Titus go to that island to minister. And now Paul leaves Titus on that island to minister. Imagine if Paul would have said something like this. Oh, those Cretans, there's no hope for them. I mean, even one of their very own has pointed out that they're all liars, lazy, gluttons, and the like. Find a better place to minister. But Paul doesn't say that. And from everything that we've been learning, it sure sounds like Cretan would have been an unfruitful place to minister and for the gospel to grow. And yet, that's the exact place that the good news needs to be brought to those that seem to be the most hopeless. Remember what Jesus said, it's not the well that need a physician, it's the sick. They're the ones that know they're sick and that are willing to hear from the doctor, not those that think everything is fine. Crete was the exact place that the good news needed to be proclaimed. proclaimed. Yes, Titus was up against some challenging circumstances. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I think the culture in which we live is a pretty challenging culture to minister the exclusive claim of the gospel of Jesus Christ that there is no other way to heaven but through him. It's a challenging culture in which we live in. It's like blasphemy in our culture to say that there is one way. I like lots of ways. I can't believe you're so judgmental. I can't believe you're so narrow-minded or these sorts of things. I can't believe you believe that there is one holy book that can speak truth into all circumstances when we know that real truth comes from everyone's individual heart, is what our culture teaches. Titus was up against some challenging circumstances, but because of the gospel, that means they were never hopeless circumstances. Because the gospel specializes in changing people. The power of the gospel can change any life. Any life from any circumstances, regardless of any cultural barriers. Here's a few things that the scripture says on this subject. Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, even if he's a Crete, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and all things have become new. The prophet Ezekiel, he said, God speaking, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. Moses said, and the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may liveth. liveth. I don't normally quote the Old Testament, or excuse me, uh, King James. Paul says, this testimony is true. Yes, they were known to be liars, and many of them were. Yes, they picked up that cultural aspect of being lazy gluttons, just out for themselves. So he says, yes, the testimony is true. Therefore, don't bother going there. He didn't say that. He says, therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. I'll paraphrase that a bit. He said, you know, Timothy, that Epimenides, he was right. It's not going to be easy. So you're going to have to make sure that you rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. 
And that's the hope of Timothy's ministry. He says, therefore. Again, he doesn't say, so don't bother going there. You're not going to, one guy you might win, but you're not going to have any fruit there. He says, no, therefore, you have to go there. And this is what you need to do when you get there. He says, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. The hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul knew, and Titus knew, that Jesus could take these lying, cheating, lazy gluttons and transform them into trophies of Christ. And there, that is so incredibly true. And it continues today. You know, as I think over our congregation, I know a lot of your stories. And it is so remarkable to see the work that God is doing in your lives and in my life as well. And I know myself pretty well. I know a lot of the changing work that God has done in me, not just in my outward behavior, but in my inner heart attitude. God changes people. And this may have seemed like a hopeless situation, but the gospel, it specializes in that. And so this morning, take hope. Because maybe there is an aspect of your life that you've been carrying around with you and dealing with for years. And maybe you're at times thinking, like, that's never going to change. I just kind of have to get used to this bad attitude or this sin that I give into or whatever it might be. Take hope in this message that we see going on here with the Cretes. Jesus specializes in changing people. Or maybe this morning you're not so much thinking about yourself, and I always think we should start with by thinking about ourselves. But maybe this morning you have somebody else in mind. Somebody else that, man, I've been talking to that guy forever. We're praying for that gal forever. Take hope, because the message of the cross is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. Paul says this testimony is true. So get out there and impact them with the gospel. He says rebuke them sharply. Make it abundantly clear that their teaching is wrong and that they need to stop that teaching and hopefully many of them will. And for those that refuse to listen, those that are bona fide false teachers, you need to put them out. You need to silence them so they don't impact others. Note it and call it out. I don't like to confront. Well, then you're not called to be a pastor or a teacher or an elder in that congregation, Titus. In a number of places in Scripture, the writers liken false teaching, false doctrine, to yeast or leaven. And as you know, when yeast reacts with the sugar and flour in a bread recipe, <laughs> a fermentation process begins resulting in the release of carbon dioxide and alcohol. The bread, the bread dough traps the gas and due to its elasticity, it begins to expand, as I'm sure you're all fully aware. I don't really know what that means, but bottom line is this. When leaven or yeast which we call it more so, I think, when it gets into the dough, it spreads throughout the dough and it causes the bread to rise. And the best time to deal with false doctrine is at the very beginning. So imagine, you're on, you're on your little counter there and you're cooking and you're getting the bread dough ready. I do this every Sunday. And you're, you're getting the bread dough ready there and you open up the cabinet and the yeast falls down and it goes into your dough and you're like, oh my, what was me, or whatever. When should you get the yeast out of there? Right there. You dig it all out and you make sure you get rid of it and you make a smaller bread uh, or loaf of bread that day. The best time to deal with false doctrine is at the very beginning. 
before it has had any chance to spread throughout the dough. But you mix it up or you cook it up, it's in there, it's in there. Many of the writers of the New Testament they use, and Old Testament, they use yeast or leaven as that analogy. And in the context of our study, we're talking about the circumcisers, the, the Judaizers, the circumcision party. This is what Paul would go on to write about it in Galatians. Again, I read some of it already, but he says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ is of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the entirety of the law. You're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion, the circumcision party, is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And it must be dealt with sooner rather than later. And it must be done so definitively because it is going to have its impact. Paul goes on. Look at verse 15. He says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, both, uh, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Sadly, folks throughout the years have used this verse to justify all sorts of sin and impropriety and say things like, well, you know, to the pure, all things are pure. I understand it may look like sin that I'm involved in. But my heart is pure, and to the pure, all things are pure. I'm not watching pornography. I'm admiring the beauty of the human body that God created. See, the pure, to the pure, all things are pure. Come on. Who are you trying to fool? We all know what's going on here. You're justifying your sin. Remember, so it's not used to describe if your heart is pure, it doesn't matter what you do, how you act, what attitudes you hold on to. That's not what Paul is. Remember the context of the passage. Because it's important to the understanding of the point that Paul is making. The context is there are these Judaizers. There were those of the circumcision party, and they were running around the island, going to all these people's homes, telling everyone that if they wanted to be right with God, and we'll call that being pure, if they wanted to be right with God, they had to follow all of these man-made rules and practices. So to them, to these Judaizers, what mattered as far as purity was concerned, is what you did on the outside, not what was going on in the inside. And so they were following all the rules on the outside. They appeared to be pure, but on the inside, their hearts were full of sin and impurity. And they thought that you could be right with God based on what, they, what you did, forgetting that the only way a person can be right with God is by coming to the cross in faith and the reconciling work of Jesus on that cross. So if you think your abstinence from certain foods or your discipline regarding certain behaviors, if you think that's what makes you right with God and better than other people, then you still don't understand the gospel. Because again, what makes us right with God and puts us on a level playing field with everyone else is God's mercy. Not as justice. Justice is getting what you deserve. Be a good person and God will give you what you deserve. That doesn't work. It's mercy. And the legalistic Christian or this Jewish person, they remain defiled in their heart and mind, regardless of the things that they were doing. And so Paul, he, he makes that point. Then he goes on in verse 16. He says, they profess to know God, but they deny him 
by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. They professed to know God, but their lives proved that they did not know God. Jesus said this in the book of Matthew. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. You've probably heard the sermon. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So even healthy, uh, excuse me, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. They profess to know God, but God did not know them. That same passage goes on. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty, many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. He says, I never knew you. How's your walk with God? Does it match your talk about God? These folks here, those two did not measure up. They didn't align with one another. Now, we know Paul is abundantly clear, and I hope I've been equally so, that a person can only be saved, only be right with God by their faith. That it's not a result of anything that we do. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so we know salvation is the result of faith in the work of Jesus Christ. That does not mean, however, that there will not be works in our life that are evidence of that faith. After a lengthy discussion in the book of Ephesians, of where Paul lays out this doctrine of salvation by faith alone in the opening chapters of the book, Paul then makes application in the later, latter half of the book. And after developing the whole doctrine of salvation by faith alone, this is what he says in Ephesians chapter 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk in a manner worthy of our calling. For the one that is in Christ, the power of sin has been broken in our lives. That means we no longer need to live as we once did. But it also means that we will no longer live as we once did. You will know a tree by its fruit. You're going to struggle with that sin, not just walking in like it's no big deal. There was a lot of work that remained for Titus on the island. He was going to have to evaluate and appoint elders in every town. He was going to have to teach sound doctrine. He was going to have to ground the believers in the truth of that doctrine. As we saw today, he was going to have to call out false doctrine, rebuking, if necessary, those that refused to listen. But Paul knew that, Tim, that Titus was up to the task. And that's why he left him there, and that's why he entrusted him with the responsibilities that he did. But more importantly, what Paul knew was that the gospel was up to the task. And praise God for that wonderful truth. 
We're not on our own here just trying to wing it. The gospel changes lives. And so we proclaim it proudly. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for that wonderful truth. But we know that there are those, even today, as there was in Paul's day, that mock the gospel, that, that see the foolishness of it. You're telling me that your God would come and die on a cross for somebody else's sins, the one that has sinned against him. That's exactly what we're saying. That our Lord came and gave his life on behalf of us. And so, Lord, we proclaim it. We're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. And Lord, I pray for our group here today. Lord, I pray for anyone that does not yet know you, has not yet experienced the life-changing power of Jesus Christ coming into their lives, forgiving their sins. Lord, I pray for those that perhaps came in here today that were hopeless about change ever truly occurring in their lives. Whether life is a mess on the outside or they've been able to cover it up and hide it and put on a good face, Lord, you know what goes on in the hearts of every man and woman. And so, Lord, I ask, Lord, right now that you would infuse hope and life into the heart of every man or woman in this room. The hope and the life that comes from Jesus Christ alone. So bless your word. May it go down deep into our hearts and may it bear fruit for all eternity. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.